a well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you've joined us on the program today. Uh, I am homebound today. I have one of those appointments where it's, uh, you know, oh, we'll be there sometime between uh, 8 a.m. today and 5 p.m. on Friday. So just, uh, you know, hang around. Oh, we won't be there on Thanksgiving. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for a service call. So uh, no trip to Farmville today. But we do have a lot to talk about in terms of your right to keep and bear arms, including a uh, bizarre armed citizen story that we're going to get to here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, before we do that, though, I-, I want you to take a look at this story from Forbes, I- I- a column from Forbes. This is not an actual news story. No, no, it's a suggestion uh, from a woman named Roxanne Bland uh, all about new ways to go after our right to keep and bear arms through increased taxes. Yeah. Roxanne Bland has a plan to... Uh, if not outright curtail our right to keep and bear arms, to to shape and mold and nudge and push Americans into less gun ownership. And she believes that we could do this not through bans on AR-15s and large capacity magazines and things of that nature, but by making it more expensive to exercise your right to keep and bear arms. Now, I have to say, I, uh, I'm not impressed with Ms. Bland's proposals. I'm also not really, I got to tell you, I, I hate to say it, but I'm not that impressed with her grasp of the Second Amendment. Here's what she says. Quote, Second Amendment isn't all that. Mm-mm. Interestingly, she writes, although ownership of firearms is considered a fundamental right by virtue of the Second Amendment, the right is not one, if taxed or regulated, that triggers strict scrutiny, such as marriage and voting. I, I, I don't know if Ms. Bland is aware of this or not, but uh, yeah, she, she, she is kind of right in that the Supreme Court has not specifically said, hey, you know what, when you're looking at Second Amendment cases, you've got to use strict scrutiny, the highest level of judicial review. In fact, they've left it kind of open-ended, which has allowed for a lot of courts to say, you know what, we're going to use intermediate scrutiny. We're going to use that 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 sort of vague, fuzzy middle ground, and we're going to uphold all kinds of gun control laws, right? But the Supreme Court is expected in this upcoming case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. We've had the oral arguments. The decision's going to come down sometime in 2022. And the expectation is not only that the Supreme Court is going to rule on the actual law in question in New York, but that the court is also going to give us uh, definitive statements about the standard of review that should be used in Second Amendment challenges. So Bland may technically be correct in terms of what the Supreme Court has said to date, but I I suspect that um, that statement by Bland is soon going to meet its expiration date. Uh, then we get into her thoughts on what the Supreme Court has actually said about these segment. And again, she's way off base. She says, quote, the U.S. Supreme Court's Heller decision definitively established what the Second Amendment's right to keep and bear arms means. The right of an eligible person to own a firearm to protect one's home and for self-defense. Thus, the Heller Court struck down a District of Columbia regulation that prohibited an otherwise law-abiding gun owner from keeping an operable weapon in his home for defense of his dwelling and person. Well, that's not the uh, quote-unquote definitive definition of the right to keep and bear arms, that you've got a right to keep a gun in your home for self-defense. 
That was the question before the Supreme Court in the Heller case. And that is the question that the District of Columbia answered, whether or not it was constitutional for the District of Columbia to bar the legal possession of handguns, whether or not that violated individual Second Amendment rights. And then we also had a question about storage, which doesn't really get into the uh, the, the tax law dispute. But the idea that while well, the question settled, the Supreme Court uh, said what the Second Amendment means, it means you can have a gun in your home for self-defense. Now, that's one of the things that the Second Amendment allows us to do, but I would remind Roxanne Bland that we have not only the right to keep, but the right to bear arms as well. And again, that's at the heart of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case. The bottom line is that the court hasn't, you know, definitively weighed in and no more Second Amendment cases. No, we're really just getting started in terms of Second Amendment jurisprudence from the Supreme Court. We've had the Heller decision in 2008. We had the McDonald decision striking down Chicago's gun ban in 2010. And uh, this will be the third case. We've also had the Catano guidance, which uh, came out in 2016. This was not a, a formal opinion uh, by the court. It wasn't an actual you know, a, a case that the court heard oral arguments in, but it, it basically was the court telling the state of Massachusetts your stun gun ban violates the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment covers uh, arms that have been invented, have been created since 1791. It doesn't just apply to, you know, muskets and uh, single-shot pistols and the like. Uh, but other than that, the court really has been silent. So we have a long way to go before I think it, uh, we can uh, honestly and accurately state that the court has definitively uh, laid out the the boundaries of our Second Amendment rights. So I think that uh, Roxanne Bland's starting from a false premise here. That, well, the court's ruled and they haven't said anything about taxes, so we can tax that right into oblivion. And actually, to be fair, that's not what she says. Here's what she says. The Second Amendment does not bar in localities from imposing taxes on firearms and ammunition, provided the tax is not so high as to put gun ownership out of reach of the ordinary consumer, thus burdening gun ownership and infringing on the rights contemplated by the Second Amendment. Yet there is, she writes, or should be, more effort put into the goal of defraying the costs of gun violence. Taxing firearms at a flat rate may help states and localities cope with the astronomical healthcare expenses for gunshot victims, but it would probably not do much to reduce gun violence. So she doesn't like the idea of a flat tax, right? A, a You know, you buy a gun, you pay an extra 25 bucks, you buy a box of ammo, you pay, uh, you know, two cents, three cents per round of ammunition. She doesn't like that idea. Because it, it, it doesn't do enough to stop gun violence. So what kind of tax does she think would actually stop, quote-unquote, gun violence? She likes the idea of excise taxes. Yeah, she says, uh, well, I mean, look, if you got somebody who's, you know, buying a lot of guns, you could you could stop that or at least reduce the number of people uh, acquiring a firearms collection by making the first purchase of a gun tax free and then imposing an incremental tax on subsequent purchases. But she says the increase would have to be substantial, perhaps in increments of 10 percent per weapon. Under such an approach, by the time a buyer reaches a certain number of purchases, the amount of tax could potentially reach at least one half of the firearm's value. Levying incremental taxes does not prohibit anyone from building an arsenal, but it certainly makes it more expensive to do so. To carry this out, all gun sellers, including those at gun shows, would be required to issue and record an official certificate of title for each purchase, thereby making it easier to track the number of weapons a person owns. And that's where this 
I mean, already we're kind of dealing with a flight of fancy here on the part of Roxanne Bland, but I mean, at that point, you might as well require every gun owner to own a pony because I don't see in our current political environment, I don't see uh, Congress declaring, all right, so here's the deal. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a, well, it's not really a gun registration per se. I mean, it kind of is. But you're gonna have you're gonna take title <laughs> to every gun that you own, and then when you sell that gun, you're gonna have to you know just like when you sell a car, you're gonna have to sign over the title of that gun to the new one. But it's not a gun registration scheme. No, 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 no. We're we're not keeping track of who all the gun owners are. Yeah, that's exactly what Roxanne Bland is proposing. And by the way, Bland remember said that uh, quote the second amendment does not bar states and localities from imposing taxes on firearms and ammunition provided the tax is not so high as to put gun ownership out of reach of the ordinary consumer well correct me if i'm wrong but my copy of the second amendment doesn't say anything like uh a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear an arm <laughs> shall not be infringed the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is silent as to whether or not your uh, uh, exercise of your Second Amendment rights stops after your first gun or after your 100th gun. You have the right to keep and bear arms. And so the idea that we would tell people, hey, um, we're going to make it more difficult for you as a working class American uh, to buy more than one gun. I believe does fly in the face of existing uh, Supreme Court precedent. There's a case called Murdoch versus Pennsylvania. This was decided back in 1943. It's a First Amendment case. It's not a Second Amendment case. But I, I think it would be applicable in a situation where we're going to start taxing people's uh, uh, gun purchases, additional guns. The more guns you buy, the more you're going to get taxed because we're going to try to fight, quote unquote, gun violence. That, to me, seems like you are taxing the exercise of a, a right in a way that even the Pittman, uh, the Pittman-Robertson tax, the excise tax on firearms and ammunition and bows and arrows and crossbows and things of that nature. I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm not a tax attorney. I think you could probably make the case that the Pittman-Robertson fund is uh, perhaps unconstitutional, but I also think it's so broadly uh, awarded that uh, it would probably uh, you know withstand uh, court scrutiny but but what bland is proposing i don't think would because in murdoch versus pennsylvania the supreme court looked at this municipal ordinance that required uh basically religious institutions to pay a license tax uh before they could uh sell their religious literature i think it was a case involving uh, the jehovah's witnesses and uh, and basically, the court said, "Look, even if the Jehovah's Witnesses are are selling their pamphlets or their materials, um, this is not a commercial venture. This is a religious venture. They are trying to win souls, not necessarily uh, acquire wealth here." Uh, and they said that a state may not impose a charge for the enjoyment of a right granted by the federal constitution. That's what the Supreme Court said in Murdoch versus Pennsylvania, that the state cannot impose a charge for the enjoyment of a right that is granted, I would use the word recognized, but granted, they said, by the federal constitution. 
So even if the ordinance is, uh, you know, uh, non-discriminatory on its face, if your constitutional rights are impacted uh, by that tax, by that charge, or by that fee, well, then that fee or that tax becomes unconstitutional. Um, so I, I don't think that Bland's ideas are going anywhere right away. But where I do think gun owners should be paying attention is if the Supreme Court does come back with a good ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, New York's may issue laws are struck down. The Supreme Court says, hey, you know what? You got to use strict scrutiny or you got to use, you know, history, text, tradition, but you got to start treating the Second Amendment like it's a real right. If that happens, gun control, the gun control lobby is going to be put back on its heels a little bit. Because for decades, their goal has been, we want to ban the guns, right? We want to limit the Second Amendment right as much as we possibly can. You don't have a right to keep a gun in your home. You don't have a right to carry a gun in public. And they, I would say within the next, you know, six, seven months, the chances are really good that those fundamental premises of the gun control lobby, can't have a gun in your home, can't carry a gun on the street, are going to be obliterated by the Supreme Court. And we've already seen activists like uh, Adam Winkler, UCLA law professor, argue that the gun control lobby needs to pivot, right? They need to get away from the gun bans and the uh, uh, bans on uh, high-capacity magazines, and, and instead they need to start focusing on things like universal background checks uh, and red flag laws. Quit trying to ban the item uh, and instead talk about it and try to find ways to prevent, uh, quote-unquote, dangerous people from getting a hold of guns. That, that, that's the pivot that uh, Adam Winkler is suggesting. Um, I think that there is going to be a day of reckoning for the gun control movement. And the idea that taxing this right, as Roxanne Bland proposes, uh, would become a popular idea among the gun control lobby, that would not surprise me one bit. So, look, I, 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 again, I think it's a legally dubious theory, but I thought Washington, D.C.'s ban on handguns was a legally dubious theory, and that was on the books for more than 20 years. So a bad idea can become a bad law, uh, you know, e even if on the face of it, we all know, okay, this this is going to get struck down sooner or later. The gun control activists are counting on that happening later. And they're counting on these unconstitutional provisions doing as much damage as they can to our right to keep and bear arms in the meantime. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there. The story out of Louisville, Kentucky, where an accused killer and a man who uh, uh, had, uh, is accused of uh, shooting at uh, police officers was out on the streets when he should have been behind bars. Uh, and, and I don't think that that is too bold of a statement to make. Uh, Fred O'Bannon died on Friday. He's a father of five. Police say 25-year-old Keyshawn Stewart shot him through his car window while O'Bannon was sitting at a construction site in Louisville. An off-duty Louisville sergeant shot in the face and survived. The officer still chased the suspect and fired and striking him, uh, even though Stewart was still armed at the time. WAVE says that Stewart, who was already a convicted felon, should not have been in possession of the firearm. Now, I would argue should not have been out on the street. Court records show that uh, Stewart had been arrested in January of 2018. He was charged with burglary, possession of a controlled substance, as well as criminal mischief. He ended up taking a plea deal 
the following year, April of 2019, he got a five-year sentence two years ago, well, two and a half years ago. But the uh, judge of the case, Judge Olu Stevens, decided to give Stewart five years probation instead. Prosecution didn't object at the time. Now, of course, they'll probably have some public statements, but at the time they didn't have any objections whatsoever. Court order said the court finds in the opinion that the imposition of the sentence herein would have a deleterious and negative effect and serve no rehabilitative purpose. It's hereby ordered that the rendition of the judgment of sentences withheld, the defendant is placed on probation. So in other words, hey, look, we send this guy to prison. It's got to make things worse. It's not going to rehabilitate him. It's probably going to lead him down a life of crime. You know, he could get out as a more hardened criminal than what he is right now. Well, how'd that work out? Actually, uh, even before this recent incident, there were signs that it wasn't working out well at all. In July of last year, Stewart's probation officer reported that uh, Stewart had failed to report to him. Probation officer asked for a bench warrant to be issued, but uh, it's unclear one whether or not one ever was. Mr. Stewart's certainly not taken back into custody because, again, he was out on the street just a couple of days ago, Friday when he is accused of shooting and killing Fred O'Bannon and wounding a uh, Louisville police officer. Now, today's Armed Citizen story, as I mentioned, this is a weird one. Orange City, Florida. This was uh, Saturday, about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Started with a hit and run. There's a guy on a motorcycle, driving on the road. Apparently, a woman in a blue Kia hits him. Not not seriously. He wasn't injured. The bike was still drivable, but or rideable, I guess. But he was hit. And so he wanted to contact the police. There were other witnesses who saw what happened, but the driver of that blue Kia then sped off. So she takes off down the road. The motorcyclist begins to follow her. He's not like he's not this isn't a road rage incident. He's not driving up to her trying to ram her car with his motorcycle. He's simply following her to see where she's going. There are other eyewitnesses who saw the original hit and run who are also following as well. Uh, at least one person's on the phone to 911 at that time while they're following this blue Kia saying, "Okay, here's where we're going. Here's what the car looks like. Here's what happened." So the driver of that Kia then pulls into the driveway of her home. She goes inside. The motorcyclist, and it sounds like at least two other individuals who were there as witnesses, are outside the house. They're on the roadway. They're not even on the lawn. They're not on the property. They're in the public right-of-way. One of them is on the phone to 911. He's given them the address. All they want is for the police to show up to deal with the hit-and-run. Nobody has tried to go to the front door of the home. As far as we know, nobody stepped foot on the property. Nobody has threatened the driver of the Kia. They're there. They know where the car is. They're on the phone with police. They're waiting for the police to arrive. While they're there, the uh, driver of that Kia, identified as uh, Sarah Nicole Morales, then comes outside the home. She's got a gun. She points the gun at the motorcyclist who also has a gun, is a licensed concealed carry holder. There's no evidence. Uh, authorities haven't mentioned anything that indicates the motorcyclist ever drew his firearm, ever informed Morales that he was armed, ever ever mentioned uh, being legally armed until Morales pointed a gun at him. And that is when the 
motorcyclist and concealed carry holder drew his own firearm and shot and killed Sarah Nicole Morales. Police are investigating. That motorcyclist uh, is described as being very cooperative. Police are viewing this as a case of self-defense. But it is a tragic situation. Morales leaves behind an 11-year-old child. She apparently was pregnant when she was shot and killed. Uh, Her family, I am sure, is grieving. She had no previous criminal history. This is a, a sort of an inexplicable series of bad decisions, it sounds like, on the part of Morales on Saturday afternoon. Uh, you know, I don't know. We, I guess we'll maybe never know whether or not she intended to hit that motorcyclist. But driving off instead of waiting for police to arrive, if she had just simply waited. This whole situation would have been diffused. She look, she may have even faced charges, but she wouldn't have faced hit and run charges. You know, I don't know if she had auto insurance. I don't know. I don't know what prompted her to leave. But she did. And then when she drove home and saw that there were people outside, she could have picked up the phone and called 911 herself and said, hey, uh, you know, look, I, I got into a little fender bender. I drove home because I was, I was concerned for my safety. They followed me home. They're outside right now. Can you please come? She could have done that. She didn't do that. Instead, as these uh, witnesses and the motorcyclist again are out on the public right-of-way, Morales grabs her own firearm, goes outside, confronts them, points her own gun at that motorcyclist and is then shot and killed. This is not a, uh, a situation that I'm celebrating. Uh, I am glad that the motorcyclist was able to protect himself. I am really, really, really sorry that Sarah Morales lost her life. That, that she engaged and made these decisions that put her in a position where she posed the threat now to that motorcyclist and the other bystanders because there's no indication at all that they ever posed a threat to her. So again, a uh, tragic situation, but uh, one that looks like, again, a case of self-defense in Orange City, Florida. We'll keep our eyes on the story, and if there are more details that come out, we'll let you know about them. Uh, Finally today, our good deed of the day from New Mexico, where a uh, off-duty Navajo police officer, recognized for his life-saving efforts, uh, Officer Jershon Begay, presented with the Citation of Life-Saving Commendation during a ceremony last week in uh, Gallup, New Mexico. For something that happened back in October, uh, Begay was driving on I-40. He was off-duty at the time. So he's driving on I-40, it was October 18th, he sees a guy standing on a bridge with a rope around his neck. Uh, the Gallup police tried to get the man down, guy reached for a hatchet, ended up threatening Officer Begay. But despite the threat to his life, Officer Begay managed to pull that man to the pavement, helped get him in custody. Man admitted that he uh, was suffering from delusional thoughts. Officer Begay remained at the scene, told the guy, listen, you're safe. We're going to get you help. Uh, And that is, in fact, what they did. They were able to get the uh, individual to a mental health evaluation uh, and hopefully um, start to to get him on a better path in life uh, where uh, he is going to get the help that he needs. Navajo Police Department, by the way, says Officer Begay has been with the department since 2015, serves with the uh, Window Rock District. But uh, even when he's off duty, Officer Jerson Begay, willing and ready 
to uh, lend a hand whenever he is needed, and we thank him for his very, very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam & Company. want to thank you for being a part of the program today. Uh, we'll probably be back in studio tomorrow. Uh, we certainly will have a brand new Cam & Company. We are going to be taking Thursday and Friday off of this week. But uh, other than that, and that's just for the show, by the way, we will still be updated BearingArms.com throughout the uh, Thanksgiving holiday weekend. So make sure that uh, you check out the website. If you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber of Bearing Arms. Just go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS and you'll get a significant discount on your VIP and VIP Gold memberships. We really do appreciate your support. It means a lot to us. We like to say thank you by giving you exclusive analysis and news stories and commentary you're just not going to find anywhere else. Uh, so again, BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS and we will see you back here tomorrow with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information. Until then, be well. Be safe and be free.